Hey, Carl here to say that Music to Code By is now an app called Music to Flow By. Now you can listen to the tracks on your phone with offline capability. The first three tracks are free, and the entire catalog is available by subscription with a new track arriving every month. Just go to musictoflowby.com for all the links. Welcome back to .NET Rocks. This is Carl Franklin. And this is Richard Campbell. We're still in London at uh, the NDC London Conference, and you can hear Big Ben clanging in the background. And we have whiskey, so the quality of our life has improved. That's right. And it's not English whiskey. Is there such a thing as English whiskey? I'm sure there is. Yeah? As opposed to Scottish whiskey. Well, Scottish uh, Scots have their whiskey, the Irish yeah. have their whiskey, but I've never heard of an English whiskey. I know there's whiskey made in Wales, which technically would not be English whiskey, but rather Welsh whiskey. Right. But I'm sure somebody somewhere in England proper has made whiskey. Yeah, that's a, that's worth, uh, you know, we're going to get lots of letters now. I, well, it's I, like, what is wrong with you? Yeah, you... <laughs> <laughs> you never had fox and hound. <laughs> yeah. I don't know which one it tastes like. <laughs> it's, it's made from real foxes. Or is it hounds? I'm not sure. All right. Well, anyway, let's roll the music for Better Know a Framework. Awesome. All right, man. What do you got? Well, we still can. Well, we still can. Uh, this was uh, an interesting um post on Stack Overflow blog oh, yeah. by Ian Allen. And this just came out six days ago from this recording. Hmm. It's called The Brutal Life Cycle of JavaScript Frameworks. Interesting. And it's uh, some statistics. So he says, JavaScript UI frameworks and libraries work in cycles. Every six months or so, a new one pops up claiming that is revolutionized UI development. Nice. Thousands of developers adopted into their new projects, blog posts are written, Stack Overflow questions are asked and answered, and then a newer and even more revolutionary framework pops up to usurp the throne. Using the Stack Overflow Trends tool and some of our internal traffic data, we decided to take a look at some of the more prominent UI frameworks, Angular, React, Vue.js, Backbone, Knockout, and Ember. Okay. And the trends lets you examine how each of the technologies has been asked about over time. And so they have some graphs. And you can see going back to 2009 and before, jQuery just sort of dominates, right? Huge arc. Huge arc going all the way up to today. But it does decline. Yeah, it starts declining in the middle of 2013. Mm -hmm. And it starts declining. And then... In, you know, the middle of, in between 2012, mid-2012, Angular JS starts its rise and ascension. And then in 2014, toward the end of 2014, React JS, and then, of course, uh, Angular. So it's interesting to see when Angular took off, and that's Angular 2 and above. Yeah. You see Angular JS, the so 1x decline. Decline, yeah. Although, you know, there's a premise here. That you think that asking questions about a product is a good measure of its popularity. Because if, if it was easy to use, nobody would ask questions. Yeah, right? that's like true. I, I just wonder about the validity of the data set. Well, there's no doubt about it that jQuery just sort of blew the doors off of everybody when it, it came out. It was the one. Yeah, it was the one. Time. And you're, you're right about the fact that it was challenging. Um, and there's a lot of developers that use jQuery that think that that's just JavaScript. Well, and you if know? you also look, you look at the graph, the numbers for jQuery are so much larger than everything else. That's right. But Still. also looking at the graph, you see the further we get to 
you know, modern, you know, further we get to today, the smaller the graphs are. Yeah. Right. So jQuery is this huge overarching thing, and everything else just sort of winds I mean, down. From that from that viewpoint, it's like jQuery we got there first with its big chunk of dominance. And the others are have just not come up to the same level. Yeah, interesting. It's just, interesting. Again, it's like you can read so much into these graphs. You really can. If yeah. you, but you got to buy into the data in the first place. Yep. But absolutely, I, it's good to have a conversation. Yep. So yeah, the brutal life cycle. I I, I kind of like it. We've talked about this kind of stuff ad nauseum on .NET Rocks, but uh, I, I it's a long blog post. There's a lot more to it than that. Sure. So I I hope everybody will go and read it. Cool. So that's what I got today. Richard, who's talking to us, man? Grabbed a comment off of show 1385 from December of 2016 for just over a year ago with Mr. Connery talking about the imposter syndrome book that he put together and that whole conversation about imposter syndrome, which fired off a ton of conversation on the website as well. Yeah. Pretty sure... Uh, Rob jumped in on some of this, but I'm going to read this comment from John Morales, who said, It was encouraging to hear that even some comm side degrees feel sometimes like imposters. As a self-taught developer, there are days where I sit at my desk expecting someone to tap me on the shoulder and say, Hey, uh, we figured out that you don't have any idea what you're doing, and we're <laughs> going to have to ask you to leave now. <laughs> Despite 20-plus years of gainfully employed doing software development, there are still days where the machines seem to be winning, and I spend every evening commute questioning my life choices. <laughs> it seems like a feature of IT work that these days, when you feel like you've slain the dragons and nobody can touch you, and other days where nothing works. Mm. And sometimes we go from one stream to the other in a matter of minutes. Mm. It's challenging work regardless of education and experience. So thank you, Rob, for sharing your experiences and writing that book. I suspect self-taught programmers like me know some of the concepts intuitively, so a resource that gives us names and formal theory that fills the knowledge gaps is much appreciated. The learning never stops. Yeah. 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 Yeah, you know, if you don't have occasional periods of I'm fooling myself, then you're really not paying attention to what's going on. Mm -hmm. Right. We, we're, we're living in a landscape that grows faster than we're able to see. Mm -hmm. It's just literally getting bigger all of the time. And it's a, it's a constant sprint. And you, if you take a breath and you're like, what did I miss? We were talking about this before, this morning when we mm -hmm. got in here, we were talking about how hard it is to put on a conference. Sure. And that, you know, there are these people who think that if you sell a company, then you uh, automatically think that you know everything yeah, and that sure. you're above I've, doing the hard work that it takes to run a I've conference. I've been successful or done it successfully done it once. Therefore, I must be successful every time I do it. Yeah, it's like you don't know enough to know what you don't know. Yeah, well like, put. You don't even know what assumptions you made mm. because they didn't bite you the first time, but it mm. turns out they bite you the second time. Yeah. So yeah, it's very challenging. Yeah. And uh, see, and it, what's interesting is I feel like. As your expertise grows, like for better or worse, I've been involved in mergers and acquisitions on a lot of different companies, mm -hmm. and I feel less confident today right. after all of the times I've done this than I did back then. Yes, I was so do I. So much more confident back then because I didn't have a clue. Now mm -hmm. I'm finally getting a clue, and it's like I know nothing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm not afraid. You will be. <laughs> <laughs> So, John, thank you so much for your comment. A .NET Rocks mug is on its way to you. And if you'd like a .NET Rocks mug, write a comment on the website at .NET Rocks.com or via any of our social media. Because we publish every show to Facebook and Google+. And if you comment there and we read it on the show, we'll send you a mug. And definitely follow us on Twitter. I'm at Carl Franklin. 
He's at Rich Campbell. Send us a tweet. Rob Connery personally uh, <laughs> <laughs> filters them for us. I don't know. <laughs> I want to include Rob somehow. In Rob that Connery joke. personally will correct your spelling. That's oh, right. Geez. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, Rob is here. And if you don't know who Rob is, just Google him. Mm. Uh, he was one of Scott Guthrie's original. What did you call them? The, the Scott open, Guthrie's Ninja Army. Nin- yeah, Scott Army, Guthrie's yes. Ninja Army. That was, was it October 2020, 2007? Yeah. Right around yeah, then, right around, right, yeah. in, right in there, and you know he he was he and Phil Hack and Scott Hansen were sort of critical in uh, getting Microsoft to open source in uh, back in those days, and you know we well, have a and lot the open to thank sourcing wouldn't come for years, mm-hmm. but it was I've always had that sense, and it's very interesting having built the chronology to see clearly Mr. Guthrie made up his mind and begin it and engaging the forces and Hanselman used this line it's like you just got the pebble rolling and yep. once the avalanche is started the pebbles don't get a vote mm-hmm. <laughs> 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 he'll pour some more for that I'll drink to that sir uh, anyway. the, you know that we did that book a little talked about that book a little over a year ago mm-hmm. what happened how did it go for you I mean, I, I know you write because you have an itch, mm-hmm. but is it a successful product? Did you sell a few? Yeah, I would say it's very successful. Mm-hmm. Um, actually, I, when I originally released it, uh, it was in the open. It was kind of a beta release. And uh, what I wanted to do was to kind of crowdsource the book. And yeah. Because, I mean, there's no way that I'm going to know enough. And I kind of just threw myself out there and yep. said, I'm, I'm trying this. And people were really helpful. And... Um, I was talking to Hanselman one day. Uh, we were talking about the podcast stuff we do. And, and I mentioned the book. And he said, oh, how's it going? And then I said, oh, it's fine. And in the course of the conversation, he tweeted it out. And then, boom. Like, oh, man. Yeah, the power yeah. of Hanselman. And I'm like, oh, no. What have you done? <laughs> yeah, right. Now, so, have, you, have you wired up to your e-commerce engine? Like you get a text each time a sale happens? Like, no, I do. You hear a little I do. Yes, yes. Shopify was going ka-ching, ka-ching. And then it stopped going ka-ching, ka-ching. I'm like, what happened? And then it was, yeah, it was yeah, you broke overloaded. It. <laughs> yeah. Hanselman tweeted about yeah. something else. Right. <laughs> but the fun thing, I mean, this is all great. But then, of course, the pressure mounts because I'm looking at the, this beta release. It is not even close to being done yeah so it took another year and two months to get to the point where i kind of felt all right this is where i want it to be interesting yeah so i kept writing it kept writing it and kept you know there's i took two or three chapters out completely rewrote Mm. rewrote the the complexity theory one i rewrote that five times now wow no eight times eight times so just give us a refresh of what the imposter book is about it started as uh it started as a blog series and the idea was I don't have a degree. And a lot of people I know I don't, don't have, have a degree. degree. Yeah. And so I thought, well, there's there's conversations that I literally exit from, or I, I just remain quiet. And I thought, you know what? I need to know this stuff. And it started with big O notation. Yeah. And and then it kind of moved into P versus NP and all this other stuff. And so I thought, well, this would make a good blog post. And so the interesting thing is if you if you commit to writing about it, you will commit to learning about it. Because sure. you don't want to sound like an idiot. Sure. But then you will only go so far if it's a blog post because you can kind of shrug it off and Mm -hmm. say, well, you know. So I thought, you know, I need to commit to this to a deeper level. So I decided to write a book. Mm. And next thing you know, I'm writing about shell scripts and just just general things I wish I knew better. Yeah. And so it evolved into a book. And I thought, this is, you know what? I think other people would find this useful. And so that's where it went. Okay. So uh, the new book. Yes. Let's talk there. Okay. 
So have you published yet? Or are we ahead of this curve? Here? No, it's, it is out. It is good to go. Okay. Yep. This one is not crowdsourced. This one, I actually hired an editor. <laughs> I actually tried to, you know, correct a lot of the spelling errors and everything. Yeah. So it's good to go. What's the gist of it? It is a Postgres tutorial. And it is, uh, it was, it was, I wanted to do something from the f uh, point of view of a data worker. So it's a book actually about data. Uh, and, and so I wrestled with the two things. Is it about data or is it about Postgres? Mm. And next thing you know, I'm wrapping this weird science fiction narrative to it. And <laughs> I'm weaving these two things back and forth in and out. And it ended up being science fiction plus <laughs> Postgres plus data. It's a weird book. But that's amazing, though. I mean, <laughs> how better to teach well, that's people these things than, than put it in the context of fiction? Yeah. yeah. I, I, had a, I have to say it was probably the best time I've had making anything. Wow. Really. Interesting. Yeah. You really, you really enjoyed yourself. I had a great time. Well, yeah. the story this, makes a difference. I think so. Yeah. And there's a ton of, as I have read it. Yes. When you, you, we first talked about doing this and I, I, I put it upon myself to sit down and read the thing. I loaded it on my Kindle <laughs> and, and consumed it. It is a style of this story narrative, but interspersed with it is examples in Postgres of working with a data set that anybody can work with. NASA mm. publishes mm -hmm. all of this data, and this is the Cassini data set. It's the real deal. Yeah, everything that, that, that Cassini's now gone as of September of 2017, mm -hmm. and everything that, they, that every bit of data that Cassini collected, NASA has published, mm -hmm. and you can grab a copy. And Cassini is the uh, spacecraft that was sort of out in the solar system taking imaging. It, and it went telemetry. to Saturn. Yep. Yeah. And it's the one that dropped the Huygens probe onto Titan. Yeah. And it had been bombing around there for 20 years. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And it was running out of fuel. Yeah. And that was the bit real limit here. So you have to do these little burns and tweaks to keep it in the orbits they want to get close to the moons they want to get to. And they're mm -hmm. finally getting down to the last dregs of fuel. And it's like, do we want to lose control of this thing and not know where it ends up? Mm hmm. And so instead, they consciously sent it into the Saturn atmosphere to burn up. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Reminds me of a girl I once knew. Mm. <laughs> yes. That's your line, Richard. Sent, yeah. I've been, sent, <laughs> I've been sent into a few atmospheres over the years. <laughs> That's for true. Um, and I'm a yeah. Postgres fan. Uh -huh. Back from sure. when Postgres was no longer, was not as sexy as it is today. Mm -hmm. when it was more of a, of a screw you to, to Oracle. Mm -hmm. We're going to make an open source alternative that doesn't suck. Mm -hmm. yeah. uh, and I mean, an awesome product. So it's very cool to teach it this way. But you didn't just teach, you're not teaching DBA. You're teaching yeah. data analytics. I'm, so that's the interesting thing about this book. Cause you can tell someone how to use Postgres. You can tell someone how to use SQL. Mm. But that's just the tool set. Yeah. You can't teach someone data and, right. and kind of a nose for data. And it's interesting, um, um, the talk I'm giving here at NDC London, I show a slide where, you know, you have to go in and you have to scrape some data off this page, but there are some inconsistencies here. And so as a, as a data person, you wear two hats. One is a data worker, or, or excuse me, database administrator, mm. where you're structuring the database. The other one is a data person a sleuth or an investigator and you have to be able to spot date inconsistencies. You have to be able to spot like a misspelling or a capitalization error here. Cause then, you know, some people have touched the data yeah. and that's when red flags go up. Like, okay, am I getting a spreadsheet of data that someone has decided to filter? Cause if I am, that's bad. Hmm. And, and then cause there's bias in the data and so on. And, that, and this is critical in the age of machine learning when people are trying to frame these, you know, algorithms to run and whatever. And they're just, 
what was the quote I heard? It was something like machine learning intensifying your bias, you know, like yeah. <laughs> or something. You know, it's just like it's it's just what you want to see. Sure, here it is, you right, know, and that's yeah. really important. And I love the fact that the NASA data is yeah. imperfect. Oh yeah, it's real data. Yeah. It's really corrected by this machine, but different teams touch it along the way, mm-hmm. and there are inconsistencies in it. Yeah. So, do different teams clean it differently? Because I know that yeah. cleaning data is is a lot of what data scientists do. Yeah. So it it's the raw data. So there's a couple of data sets you can get, and so we can talk about two in, in particular. The, there's the master schedule that you can download, which is 61,874 rows of a CSV of every command sent to Cassini, every team involved, and there's a title and a description of what it's doing and the target of what it's doing. Wow. Fascinating data. But you yeah. go through there and you quickly realize this is a spreadsheet that someone, it looked like, kept on their desk. Sure. Uh, then you have the data from like the, the INMS, the ion neutral mass spectrometer that just basically did all these readings as it went along, but the data came back in this very raw form and it had to be validated. And so what the team did is they, they sent out all these CSVs, which you can download, but they also sent down, uh, sent down this, the work that they've done to validate it and proof it. Yeah. So you can actually look at this manifest and it shows all of the validations and proofs that they've gone through and who did it and when. Huh. And so they've they've have gone back and corrected the data set over time because for lots of reasons. I could yeah, get right. into some super detail right there and nerd out, but yeah, that's uh Well and again, twenty years. Yep. The chances it's the same people the whole way along, like you're looking mm-hmm. at the evolution of people's careers, yeah. but at the, the evolution of how they understood their sensors, right. the decay of Cassini itself, the problems it started mm-hmm. to have, like all of those things show up. Was mm-hmm. there ever any compromised data? I mean, one of the problems with data science and data that you collect from users is that it's wildly inconsistent. Mm-hmm. But, you know, when you have a, a, a device, you know, like Cassini, where the computer is sending back, you know, the same formatted data mm-hmm. all the time... Uh, do you have to sort of figure out which records to scrub because they were not significant or? I don't know the details on this, but I do know that a lot of, uh, so for instance, there's this instrument on, on board called the Cosmic Dust Analyzer. Love I love that. that. Great. I know. The CDA. It is the CDA, <laughs> correct. And it is a mass spectrometer and it, it and a ma- just, uh, let me interrupt. Please. A mass spectrometer finds the chemical makeup of anything, yeah. right? Uh, d- yeah, using various ways. So the the best analogy that I've ever read is to think about uh, sprinklers in the sunlight and how mm. it causes a rainbow spectrum. Mm. Uh, you can do the same thing with random particles. You just have to either energize them or pulverize them and study the plasma. It's like a tricorder. Right. Sure. Yeah. Sure. <laughs> yeah, why not? <laughs> but any, you know, you talk about data problems. Uh, the CDA getting overwhelmed as they went through right. the Enceladus plume. Yeah. Oh. So the CDA, CDA. Well, okay. Really quickly to go back to what you were saying. Mm. They actually, there's white papers that are coming out now that are saying that the instrument, as calibrated, was in error. And so all of the data that was sent back needs to be adjusted in this way. And there's oh, this great sure. white paper I read. I'm like, wow, that's fascinating. So yes, uh, they do go back and adjust it. But also to, <laughs> to Richard's point, um, 
these instruments are highly sensitive, and so they have various modes for how they read the material that's out there. Mm. And so the CDA actually is multiple sensors. There's the HRD, which is the high-rate detector, and the CDA itself, which has a bunch of other sensors. But yeah, they go through these really intense dust areas, and so it has to flip over to the HRD. Otherwise, it gets saturated, mm. and it just kind of pings out. I don't know what's going on. Yeah, so, whereas a, so whereas a human would put their phone number in the zip code field, mm. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> Cassini is it's more like the Hubble, right? Where they had to correct uh, yeah. with yeah. math for the yeah. flaws in the yeah. hardware. The best part about this is there's so much data, so much data, that they are still analyzing it and still discovering things. Sure. Wow. And they just came out with a discovery, what was it, two weeks ago, this German team. It's like, we think we have, we think we now understand what makes Enceladus so hot. Because it's this little tiny moon, 300 sure. miles in diameter. What's it called? Enceladus. And this is a Saturn moon? Yes, this is a Saturn moon covered in ice, the primary candidate for life in the solar system. And it, no and one it, has heard of it. It was not the primary mission of Cassini. Nope. The mission, when Cassini goes up, it goes up to look at Saturn, mm -hmm. to drop that lander, the, the, the lander on, uh, Titan. Like those are the focuses. And hold that thought just for a minute while we uh, pause for this very important message. Hey, Rockheads, this is Carl. Have you tried JetBrains Rider? It's a new cross-platform.net IDE that's light yet powerful and comes from the makers of ReSharper, IntelliJ, IDEA, and WebStorm. You can write .NET code on Windows, Mac, or Linux. Rider has you covered. Rider helps you develop ASP.NET, .NET Core, .NET Framework, Xamarin, and Unity applications. Most languages used in .NET development are supported. From C-Sharp, VB.NET, F-Sharp, and XAML, to ASP.NET Razor Syntax, JavaScript, TypeScript, and all that other front-end stuff. It comes with navigation, thousands of code inspections, refactorings, unit testing, debugging, rich coding assistance, and more advanced IDE features powered by proven technology from ReSharper and WebStorm. Download Rider now and take it for a 30-day trial at rider.netrocks.com. That's R-I-D-E-R dot D-O-T-N-E-T-R-O-C-K-S dot com. And we're back. It's .NET Rocks, Carl Franklin, Richard Campbell. Rob Connery is here. He's talking about his new book, uh, a sort of a meld of science fiction and data. And we're talking about Cassini and this uh, moon that you were talking about. This is the first time I've heard of it. I heard about Titan, mm -hmm. but I've never Encef en encephalitis. <laughs> encephalitis. What is, what is it called? Enceladus. So tell me a little about Enceladus. So uh, Enceladus has a number of really weird uh, stories to it. Number one, it's the most reflective body in the solar system. Okay. It's 313 miles in diameter. It's very small. It's about the size of the UK, Great Britain here. Mm -hmm. Wow. Yeah, it's fascinating. It's very tiny. So Voyager back in the 80s was cruising the, you know, cruising by Saturn and it actually had this this boom that it had a a camera on and it could swivel around and move and take pictures of anything without rotating the spacecraft. That's a big deal. And so the scientists were having so much fun rotating the camera that they actually locked it up. And so the camera got stuck. And they're like, "Oh my god." And they're freaking out. What we are we going to do? Camera. And so during that time, the thing was pointing at Enceladus. Like, let's take a picture of Enceladus. Because it's this moon. And they just figured that most of the moons of Saturn were what they call dead ice balls. Just nothing. Mm. So they took a picture of this thing. And they managed to capture a picture of this little moon in the middle of Saturn's E-ring, which is the outermost ring. It's diffuse. You can't see it from here. Mm. 
And they're just looking at this going, well, not only is it in the middle of this ring, it's in the middle of the densest part of the ring. If it's so small, why would it be called a moon and not an asteroid or a particle or something? I mean, I don't know. There's a, there's it's, a, so the, the main definition when you talk about moons is that they are in stable, repeating, synchronous orbits. Okay. And so in order for you to end up in stable orbits, the same way that the planets are, right? every time the earth goes around the, the, the sun three times, Mars goes around twice. Mm -hmm. So those synchronous orbits are stabilizing. So you look at this array of moons that are around Saturn. How do you distinguish between them and just debris in the field yeah, or shepherds right, yeah. and so forth? It's this repeating orbit pattern. So Enceladus actually has a very good orbit. Mm -hmm. Does that mean they have to have a certain mass in order it to doesn't. have that stability? Really? It's not required. And it's not even they're not even necessarily native. So there's a consideration huh. that they might be a capture, but they stabilized. For whatever reason, they got light. The bottom line is, if you're not in one of these stable repeating orbits, you will eventually be thrown out. Interesting. Inevitably. Yeah. So by the time billions of years have gone by in the solar system, we have a set of stable orbits, and Encephalus is one of them. But that picture, mm -hmm. that prophetic picture where they caught the light the right way so that the E-ring, which is normally really hard to see, is brightly illuminated, and the moon's right in the middle of it. Yeah. You're like, that can't be an accident yeah and so they they nasa does not believe in coincidences so i started to think about what 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 could be the relationship between the e-ring and the moon and so a lot of theories came out and they thought well maybe it's just a bunch of ice it's just you know jetting out mm. so long story short they realized that it actually caused the e-ring it actually created the e-ring and wow. that posed a conundrum how could this little moon give off that much mass because at that time it was the largest ring in, in the solar system. So does the th that tells me that it must have been a lot bigger in the past. Well, that's what they thought. Yeah. And so, anyway, that, I'll leave that there. So, so what they did with okay. Cassini was <laughs> they, they thought, well, we need to take a picture of this thing. We need to get close to it. So mm. they just scheduled one little flyby. Uh, we'll go and we'll take some pictures and we'll figure it out. Mm. And it's funny to read the accounts of this with the team because the team was like, ah, oh, we just thought it was going to be a picture of an icy just moon. Picture, put the thing to bed, not yeah. a big deal. And this audio mm. interview of the head of the magnetometer team, uh, her name is Michelle Doherty, who's English, by the mm -hmm. way. Uh, she says, I, we, didn't, we didn't think anything of it, and I didn't even look at the data for 24 hours. When they got the data back, they saw the, the magnetic field of Saturn bending around the south pole of Enceladus. And the only thing that would cause that is an atmosphere. And they're thinking, wait, an atmosphere on a 300-mile di diameter moon doesn't make any There's sense. There's no way that could be true. Yeah. Right? It's by the way we understand yeah. planetary bodies. And so that wow. flipped everybody out. And like, how could this possibly be? This led to two more flybys. They then said, we have confirmed it's an atmosphere. So racing ahead on this one, they found that the thing generates a ton of heat. It's got a global ocean over a rocky core that is at some levels, the same temperature as our ocean. It's salt water covered in a shell of ice. That shell of ice is completely detached from the rocky core, and it spews these plumes out of the South Pole. And they found in these plumes uh, molecular hydrogen, methane. What? They found CO2. What? And Na the NASA team has said this is a smoking gun. They said this in a white paper, not some clickbait article. They said this in a white paper. This is a smoking gun for the presence of life. That is insane. Now, when you say the 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 uh, moon is covered in ice, do you mean the atmosphere, or do you mean on the surface? Just on the surface. The atmosphere is literally the plumes that, of of water ice that is being jetted out. And these it, plumes wow. are firing often enough 
yeah. that they're maintaining a sense of atmosphere around the body. Wow. And they're forceful enough to escape the gravity of the moon and leave this E-ring. Yep. This ring exists from those plumes. I mean, yep. that's the assumption. And not only that, it actually is the only moon that's that's known to influence its host planet. So the, <laughs> so, so the plumes are actually, the, the plumes have made their way into the North Pole of Saturn, and there's a ring of a water cloud <laughs> in and Saturn's North Pole. I'm trying to get some sense of the dimensions here. <laughs> Saturn crazy. is bigger than Earth. Saturn is much. <laughs> much bigger than Earth. Yeah, yeah. And this, this moon is as big tiny. as the UK. Yeah, it's tiny. Yeah. It's ridiculous. And no one, like, no one knows the story of this thing, and it's just bonkers. So, yeah. It is bonkers. So how did you weave that into the story? I took inspiration from The Martian by Andy Weir. Great and book. Yeah. And so, so Andy Weir started with this premise. We have an astronaut stuck on Mars. Right. And so at that point, you know, being a good developer, you would think, well, how are we going to structure this out? And you want to lay out a whole thing of how we're going to get the... He's like, I'm not doing that. I'm solving one problem at a time. So that's yeah. how he wrote his chapters. Solving one problem and then more problems would present themselves. And his feeling was, if I solve enough problems, I'll get it off. Hmm. And I thought, you know what? I can do the same thing. Because I read all of this. I knew all of this yeah, about yeah. Enceladus. And I thought, my premise is going to be, let the data tell the story. I just have to find the data points, and then from there, I'm going to find more data points, and that's how I wrote the book. Which is just a good data science mindset, too. It's yeah, like, that was Do not focus. come with any assumptions. That's right. What does the data tell you, and yeah. follow it? Yeah, so in the story, it's funny. D, my, my character's name is D. Yan, and uh, she's based on... Uh, She's based on a real person, let's put it that way. Actually, okay. she's based on a number of real people. And I thought, what would this person do? I'm not going to name who it is. Uh, but I thought, <laughs> what would this person do in this case? And so anyway, she, uh, she has to go and explore and discover what's going on. And she, she stumbles a lot. She realizes this data is not usable, and she has to go back and check again at another data set to find something that is valid and usable. And I wanted to go through you that. Go through the data loading problem mm -hmm. with real... I mean, you can take this book... And do these examples. Yes. Yeah, that's the thing that's occurring to me is that you're not fudging the facts, right? No. The story uh -uh. is a story, but the data is the real. Data. Absolutely real. Real data. Made for people to follow along. They read the story and then they got the data set. They can download it and they can play along and see the data for themselves. So does that mean your book is for everybody? Absolutely. It, it is. Absolutely. It really is. It's not exclusive to develop. If no. you're not a developer, you're not going to get lost. No, not at all. If you... If you like data if you like space you could sit down and do this mm -hmm. wow and and he's taken on the challenge i mean the, the cassini data set is incredibly massive and yeah he's taken a chunk of it and it's a chunk i love because it was the accidental find of cassini but it still comes down to what 11 passes they made on in 22 22 yeah. okay so, and most of them developed after the fact yep Wow. Right? Including an extraordinarily dangerous path. Yes. They went much too low. They <laughs> yes. flew Cassini through the plume yeah. and actually burned a bunch of fuel to stop it from spinning out of control <laughs> yes. because the plume actually hit the spacecraft yeah. and was going to knock it out of control. Yep. Like they did some nutty. Now, admittedly, they were well past the initial mission. Like you take more risks further down in the mission, but. That close pass, what was it, like 60 miles off the surface? 18 miles off the Eight, surface. Wow. And they almost lost the vehicle. Uh, and, and it was flying at 19,000 miles an hour. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. not a lot of room for error. This no. is insanely cool. And it was, it, this is, what I love about this story, Rob, mm -hmm. is the data is real. 
It's like, this actually happened, and you can look at the consequences of those actions in Mm -hmm. this data. You've wrapped a narrative around it, but it's, while it's fictionalized, it's not fictional. Yeah. Well, it's really the only way to tell the story, and that's why I actually added the narrative, because just sitting there divulging all these facts and figures, yeah, and whatever, it's, it's kind of it's boring. Dry. Yeah. But if you actually put someone in the seat where they have to figure out what's going on, then, uh, you know, it's, uh, it's, it's more fun. That makes it much better. Hey, well, hey, Richard. Yeah, buddy. Guess what time it is now? It must be that happy time again. Yeah. It's time for me to take a bio break to wipe out the Klingons circling your anus. Uh, or is it my anus? I think they should rename the planet to my anus. <laughs> you know what? <laughs> That's really funny, right up to you, like, 10. <laughs> and then it's Uranus after that. Yeah, what's the deal with Uranus? You mean the name of the planet? That, yeah, yeah, Uranus. <laughs> I mean, that is that any better? They're saying Uranus or they're saying anus? They're saying urine or they're saying anus? I don't get it. So All whatever. right. I, I, R- Rob just sort of hit his head and yeah, shook no, it. It's, it's, it's got to be a code of conduct violation. Oh, so. my God. <laughs> I'd call HR, but they don't seem to care either. <laughs> Oh, <laughs> uh, actually, it's time to give away a D-Experience subscription from DevExpress to one lucky member of the .NET Rocks fan club. Become a UI superhero with DevExpress UI controls and libraries and deliver elegant .NET solutions that address customer needs today and leverage your existing knowledge to build next-generation touch-enabled solutions for tomorrow. Whether it's an Office-inspired application or a data-centric analytics dashboard, DevExpress Universal ships with everything you'll need to build your best without limits or compromise. And check out their DevExtreme React grid, built from the ground up to fully support all the cool features that come with React, like the virtual DOM and state controllers like Redux and all that. It supports master detail, sorting, grouping, paging, and editing, and you can check it out and test it for free on GitHub. Learn more and download your free 30-day trial of DevExpress Universal at devexpress.com slash superhero. Well, all right, buddy. Who's our winner? Today's winner is Carl Schrammel. Congratulations, Carl. Yavo. Well, clap for you, sir. Yes, Carl just won the D-Experience subscription, a big pile of awesome from our friends at DevExpress just for being a member of the .NET Rocks fan club. And if you don't know what that is, go to .NET Rocks.com. Click on the big Get Free Stuff button, answer a few questions, and join the fan club. We have thousands of members all over the world, and every show we like to give away stuff from our sponsors. And every December, we give away a $5,000 technology shopping spree to one lucky member of the .NET Rocks fan club, but you got to sign up to win. And Rob, now it's your turn. If you had $5,000 to spend on technology, yada, 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 blah, 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 hama, hama, sabah, sabah, you know the drill. What would you buy? Oh, man. How can you not buy a telescope? <laughs> Come on! <laughs> I would. No, actually, I was just looking. I have a Celestron. Uh, Celestron, what is it? A 4500? Something like that. Yes. Yeah. I would buy a new scope. But see, the thing I hate about the scope I have is it doesn't have, like, iPhone ability. Like, there should be, like, the iPhone as controller Picking of the scope. Picking up the controller on it's too much. You want to use your I iPhone. have this dial pad that really sucks. Okay. It always runs out of battery. But I would get a new scope. Good one. Yeah. Thank you. But the biggest thing, especially with those Celestrons, is when you get them set up right and you put them on a target like Jupiter or yes. Saturn... You can hear it ticking yes. as it's compensating for the Earth's rotation yep. to keep that planet in the center yes. of the frame. 
Wow. So yeah. you can just look through it. The machine is going to keep that thing focused. Is the Celestron, does it have a uh, an output for a monitor so that you can view it on a monitor? Or do you have to look into the scope? Depends on the model. Yeah, it's, they do have those. It's all about the money. I mean, it's ones that are set up so you can just put an SLR mounted directly onto it and you can turn that into video mode. The yeah. problem, of course, is that the resolution, right? I mean, yeah. when you look into the scope of a telescope, you're seeing some seriously yeah. high resolution. I mean, there, yeah, seeing Saturn with your own eye through one of those devices on yeah. a good dark Woo. night. Yeah. yeah. Like it's what the thing you get is that infinite resolution feeling, mm -hmm. right? It's just sort of the fractal nature of mm -hmm. reality yeah. is so much deeper than any photograph. Your eyes are analog. And they, they just yeah. it pull something out that's special. The best stargazing I ever did was on Grand Manan Island, which is off the coast of Nova Scotia. And of course you, you go out there, it's, pitch black right and with binoculars i saw the andromeda galaxy yes. oh yeah that was yeah. amazing well the the fun thing about what you guys are saying right now that 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 joy of seeing the rings of saturn through a telescope yeah. mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and and uh, even like the sound the tick 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 sound is something i remember is the first time i saw a saturn uh and i was up at this lake this high mountain lake and the memory is still so strong in my head i actually put that memory verbatim in the book and the reason why is because when you're working with that data and you can tie that back to that memory, it makes mm. your job amazing. Yeah. Wow. And, yeah. and that joy of feeling this discovery, like, oh my God, in the memory of that, I can still see the shadow of the rings on the planet. Like I, I can see it in my head. That was quite a moving moment. It was yeah. really a neat thing to see. Well, and, and with a, if you drop five grand, like one of those higher end celestrons, you are going to see most of the shepherd moons. Yeah. It's like, yeah. You're just going to have this sense of an incredibly active system. Yep. Mm. Stuff's going on. And for those out there who are listening that want to get a telescope, I would encourage you to use your eyes to look through the scope. I mean, looking through the screen that you have would be great too, but then yeah. it's like you're looking at it on a screen, look right. with your eyes. Look with your eyes. Because that's amazing. Yeah. And, and especially and seeing the big red spot on Jupiter, that's another good yeah, one. Yeah, it's a good chill. I'd also say anybody who's just getting into this for the first time, find your local astronomy club. Yes. There you go. Go yes. look through somebody else's telescope mm -hmm. before and you start spending get away money. from the light pollution. Yeah. yeah Very that's important. That's the hard part. But yeah. I, I mean, it just it's super easy to sink money into something that doesn't make sense for you long term right mm -hmm. you get the first time you get this chill it better not be on your own dime like yeah. mm -hmm. some somebody owns a great telescope that's going to let you look through it yeah. and you should have that experience like it's very very compelling well if you have five thousand dollars from dotnet rocks well yeah it's not really your money yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know, you know. go go to can town. you imagine if somebody because we've always uh you know all the all the prizes we've given away have been about developer yeah machines inevitably or, this year what or 2017 was the most interesting year because he he bought more monitors. Yeah, like it wasn't just a computer. He was thinking 4K. more long-term, high-resolution yeah. stuff, like quality of life stuff, which I, I really appreciated that. But can you imagine if somebody said, you know, I want a telescope? Mm. Uh, it's perfectly, hey, you know, they can buy whatever they want. It yeah. doesn't matter to us. Sure. I, I find it all technology and, and just interesting sure. in that space. So, but I, I do, again, I'm, I mean, obviously I'm a fan of the book, uh, and I thought it was a great way to teach not just Postgres and data and ETL, you know, those kinds of problems, but this sort of responsible analysis, mm -hmm. like you keep, you don't find the first solution to the questions being asked of, that these being asked of her boss. Mm -hmm. It's that you make a repeatable, reliable, verifiable solution mm -hmm. that you mm -hmm. really think you've got the data correct. Mm -hmm. And there's several cases where she had 
examples of what the correct result should be, and she had to figure out how to make sure that she could retrieve that mm-hmm. from the database. I think that was yeah. a really interesting intersection. Mm-hmm. Yeah, she backed herself into a corner in, in one part of the book and found she she thought she had the right answer and and she was really excited and she she's like okay I'm gonna go now and use this and do the next step and completely crashed into a wall mm. and so she has a counterpart in the book who is sort of a mentor and whatnot and he helps her out with a little bit of tough love and says you mm. were looking for something that wasn't there it was in your head and you thought it should be there wow. but it wasn't there and it was telling you that it wasn't there the whole time. And that is really hard as a data person. And I remember that from a job that I used to have as a data person. Oof, you find that out, and you're like, oh my God, it's like a hallucination. So if this book was going to be made into a movie, who would play the main character? I'm thinking Jodie Foster, right? Yeah. <laughs> uh, actually, it's funny. You know, I had a vision in my head. It was Mackenzie Phillips, who oh, played yeah. Mindy Park in The Martian. Yeah. She, she uh, kind of fit the bill. Neat. And she was uh, one day at a time as well, right? Is that same Mackenzie Phillips? No, no, that was, am I thinking, is that the right name, Mackenzie Phillips? I don't think so. Her first name is Mackenzie. Mackenzie Phillips is the Michelle Phillips daughter who yes. played the daughter on the One Wilson Day at a Time. Yeah. yeah, right. Yeah. Same one? I think it is, yeah, yeah. Yeah, okay. And there's, uh, so so she's she's Mindy Park, but she's also in uh, my favorite episode of Black Mirror. Okay. Yorkie. Uh-huh. You remember the San Junipero? San Junipero, that's how they pronounce it in the show. But me being a Californian, I have to say San Junipero because, nice. you know. Got anyway. to put the emphasis on the right syllable. That's right. But I know her name is Mackenzie. Okay. There you go. You have some characters around yes. the whole thing. Would it make a good movie? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, maybe a good nerd movie, you know? Well, so the Martian really was ex- a great nerd movie, wasn't it? But they didn't spend too much time in the science. This is really... I really wanted to focus on Postgres and... I mean, I really wanted to focus on it. It's funny because a friend of mine said that the narrative kind of set you free mm. to 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 really tell your point of view on Postgres. And to, what I mean by that is there's one part in the, in the book where the, uh, the, the counterpart character, his name's M. Sullivan, uh, where he goes off on how important Postgres is. And this is true, that is highly, it's regarded as the pinnacle of open source software. It is regarded as the best source code you could look at. And the best uh, run project, the least bugs, it is necessary and uh, must continue. And it's wow. just really fun to write that. You know, mm. and I went off on that and I wanted to, I don't know how well that would come across in a movie is what I'm trying yeah, to say. Yeah, I see. Yeah. You know, I, it appears to me that science in an, in a fictional setting like that is almost like jazz in music. Mm-hmm. Like, you, if you're g- trying to be popular, you can't do too much of it. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yes, yes. Very good analogy. I like it. Yeah, yeah it's true. no, true. And so, you, you got to do enough to, to seem sophisticated and, yeah. and have the harmonies and tensions and things. But if you do too much jazz, people yeah. are like, oh, my God, what is this yeah. crap? I don't understand this. Well, it, it, at some point, it is... Uh, it's only for the musicians that are playing. That's it's right. Like, yeah. there, I have I have had that experience watching jazz. At some point, it's like yeah. I'm embarrassed to be looking. Yeah. Well, yeah, it's right. You, you guys if, are clearly playing to each other, and we as an audience are, you know, shouldn't be. If here. the only yeah. people that show up at your gig are other musicians, you're probably doing too much yeah. jazz. And if the only, <laughs> if the only people, <laughs> right. the only people who are reading your book are scientists and programmers, then you miss the mark. You want yeah. to go, make go it more inclusive. Yeah. yeah. Well, and the other thing to tie into that a little bit, I wanted to have an ethical argument. I wanted I wanted people to be vexed at the end because. 
in machine learning, this is critical, where mm-hmm. people are doing these logarithms, they're working with data, and they're focused on the data, and they're getting it right, and they're like, okay, I'm done. Or that's the, kind of the image, at least. Well, that's, is that, is that, are you really done? What have you made? What have you right. created? What's being done with it? Well, yes. what actions will be taken from the knowledge right. gained? Yeah. yeah. So we get into an ethics discussion at the end, and, and I kind of left it dangling. And it's funny, because Richard... Uh, you didn't leave it dangling. You punched <laughs> it in the face. And frankly, I'm offended. <laughs> <laughs> it's so it's funny. Yeah, Richard and I have been disagreeing a little bit on on the ending, which I wanted. A little I bit. Wanted, well, yeah, I wanted all right. So this comes down to a basic question: Do you yeah. think humans are are inherently good or inherently evil? It, well, or okay. do we have to choose? Are they both? It's honestly the notion of good and evil does come into play, and as Obi Wan Kenobi said, it's a matter of perspective, mm. uh, and it's true. So you know, it, it revolves. The ending revolves around the question: What if we found life? On Enceladus. Which, I mean, and that's the most salient. Again, let's forget about the book for a bit. Sure. The data that is there is indicative of some kind of submerged saline life. Black smoker, something growing around. The black smoker is not life, right? The black smoker is an energetic source. These are things that that exist on the earth. Is that like a volcano under the water? Yes, except it's not not volcanic. Like, it's not emitting lava. Yeah, it's just hot water. Yes, except it's water-laden with uh, a bunch of complex compounds, right? So, so they have these vents at the bottom of the Mariana's right. Trench and things like that. Like, they, they, they're, they're all over they're the They're all place. over the ocean, yeah. And, they, and they're called black smokers because they're emitting sulfates yeah. and hydrocarbons mm. that represent forms of energy. Mm. And so when those were first discovered on the Earth was the first time we had an example of any kind of life that didn't require sunlight. Mm-hmm. Every other form of life we had found up until then, even the various planktons and so forth, still interacted with the sunlight. And here was a thriving life form right. that never came out of the dark. In right. numerous locations. Yeah, and re- oh, repeated over and over again, yes. ultimately distinctive, diverse, prolific. Mm-hmm. And so, so if there's an energy source, there's a potential for life, right? Yeah. And he, and he, and saline water seems to be relevant to that equation, yeah. Yeah. and a certain degree of certain range of chemistry. And so the point was that the sensors on Cassini showed that that range of chemistry, that energy level, yep. and that activity yep. all exist on Enceladus. Wow. Three ingredients of life, according to NASA and these papers written, uh, called uh, they call them origin of life reactors or bioreactors. Mm. Three things are required: chemistry, temperature, chemistry, energy, and water. Mm-hmm. And they're all there. And they're all there. And, and the temperature is. Can you tell me what the, is the temperature the same around the entire moon? No, no, it's focused on the South Pole. Mm-hmm. And so, so the interesting thing about Enceladus is it's tidally locked to Saturn, the way our moon is, and so it constantly faces Saturn. And so, they're struggling to come up with a model for how Enceladus generates this heat. Because they can't, they can't explain it. What they think is that it's 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 morphed constantly by gravitational and tidal forces. Sure. So they think that the in, the inside is this porous mass that's constantly being squeezed mm. and uh, creating this heat. But they can't create the model here that 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 will that uh, approximates the heat that they see up there. And so they think on the ocean floor the temperatures reach boiling. You know, wow. and, and, and anywhere on the surface, is it warmer? Yes. And then you can see there's these, uh, they call them sulci. That's a word I learned. Mm-hmm. Uh, sulci, there are these four stripes. They call them the tiger stripes. These four stripes 
And that's where the heat is concentrated. And they're like little vents. And that's where these plumes come out of. But there's no land per se. It's all, no, it's all it's, ice. Yeah. yeah. But the plumes are great. And it's funny watching these interviews with the NASA team. They're like, you know, it's giving us these samples. It's like spewing them out. Like, here, here I am. Here I am. Yeah, Take a look. Em. Yep. And so Cassini's just dives right by. You know, we don't have to do any subsurface analysis. Wow. This, you know, the surface and what's under it is coming out. Yeah, that is so amazing. It's they, really fun. They were able to get the images with background lighting. Like mm-hmm. they had all of the options over those years to try all the different versions of how they're measuring it. So what were some of the evil things that could be done with the data that you addressed in your book? Well, I, I could go into it. I'd give away the ending, and I, I, I'm tempted to, but I don't want to. Um, Read it. Oh, come on. It's just you and me and Richard talking. <laughs> come on. It, it's all right. Well, no. So we, I do dive into what if we found life. Yeah. And so I put forward the proposition from one of the characters that no one would care. Uh, not only would no one care that, that, that a lot of people would deny it and say it's, it's made up, fake news. Mm. And I, I don't know. I think the vast majority where we disagree. of people <laughs> will simply go whatever. Oh, okay. We do agree on this. No, yes. I, do, I, do, I, think, I don't think anybody's going to generate a lot of hate around this. Yeah. They're going to question this. Like, Well, in you know. life versus intelligent life. If there's intelligent right. life, do we feel a moral obligation to help them, save them, whatever? Right. Yeah, and we're uh, not there. We're not there. Right. We're totally no, not there. The, 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 the most logical thing is some kind of bacterial life that feeds off the energy of the black mm. smoker yep. that occasionally is being sprayed off the surface of Encephalus. Maybe uh, some kind of aquatic measure. animals. Yeah. It, might even, uh, yeah. it may not even be that sophisticated. Yeah. Like, I'm yeah. perfectly willing to go, hey, look, if there's bacteria reproducing reliably right. on another body in this solar system, yeah. that's a big enough deal for me as a serious science geek. Yeah. Okay? But is it going to affect the average person? Yeah. I don't think, I think they're barely going to react. I think the biggest impact would be on the scientific community, uh, given the nature of life itself. Yeah. Uh, it sounds like a big sentence, but if we do find life on Enceladus, it'll mean that it's everywhere. Yep. You know, it's that life is not random, that it is just a natural it's thing that occurs. Kind of inevitable. And mm-hmm. it it forces us to rethink how life came about here because a lot of people think that, oh, the lightning struck the amino acids on a rock somewhere. No, right. it probably came from the ocean floor. Yep from one of these smokers right. yep. and made its way to the surface and then the sun took it from there. Hmm. So yeah, the uh, in, the habitable zone just is actually inconsequential according to these this whole idea. So you really love writing. I had a good time. This I've book never came written out, like we talked about. I mean, you and I talked fairly often. Yeah. You were tormented writing the imposter syndrome. Like that was hard work for you. It was very hard. You pushed back and forth on it. This book clearly was a delight. It came and it virtually out of me. Wrote yes, it did. And I've and told even this though you're it. wrong, <laughs> it wrote itself. <laughs> yeah, it's funny. Like Richard, you're not subtle. <laughs> a lot of people ask me about the main character, and you know, you know, you're a guy, and you're writing a book. Uh, about a young woman in the technology field. Mm. How are you capable of doing that? And then, you know, all these intellectual questions, which were great questions to ask. And I said, you know what? I have no idea where D came from. Sure. She just popped out of my head. And not only could I, not only was I really inspired, but there was no way I couldn't write this. Like once it started going, D was shouting in my head every day and nice. I needed to get her story. You out. know, I could say they didn't give JK Rowling any grief for writing Harry Potter, who is yeah. clearly a boy. Sure. Well, I mean, humans are it, humans, it's right? It's true. It is, but there, there are concerns. Like, you know, a lot of authors are asked this question how can you 
Well, and yeah. you know, going back to Andy Weir and his new book Artemis, yes, where, the, right. where the protagonist is female, yeah. and he's been fairly roundly criticized yep. for his his female characterization. Yep, I was actually at get this in yeah, Seattle. Yeah. In Lake Forest Park, I went to my local bookstore because they had an event where Neil Stevenson and Andy Weir were in wow. in discussion, and he was asked that by the crowd. How could you write about a woman? You know, because you're like smart-ass guy, and he's hysterical, by the way. If you get a chance Andy's to brilliant. see him. Yeah. Yeah. Love, love, love. Just yeah. wonderful My favorite guy interview with Andy Weir is with Adam Savage. Oh, God. <laughs> oh what great. a and the, yeah. that, that's great. They're geeking out about each yeah. other. Yeah. Now, it's if you had Randall funny. Monroe in the in the uh, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. that would only make it better. Bring yeah. it to another well, level. Just to really quickly tell you, uh, he's he used a number of editors to to check him on this. Sure. And um, yeah, and and it's it's still as I did by the way. It's still problematic that character. I mean, I I did enjoy Artemis, but I, I've come to include. I, I'm starting to feel like Andy Weir is another Larry Niven, which I think is a compliment. Mm-hmm. But Larry built beautiful worlds yeah. and very ordinary characters. Yes, it was only right. when he worked with the the recently passed Jerry Purnell. Yep. Where Purnell had fairly ordinary worlds, but lovely characters. Mm-hmm. But you take those two writers together and you've got these, ex- you know, moats in a god's eye, like some yeah. of the most extraordinary science fiction books that ever existed. Mm. So, and I wonder if, I have nothing bad to say about Andy's world building. His approach to the moon in Artemis, lovely, yeah. worth further research. I hope he publishes more stuff on it. Like, it's very thoughtful. Yeah. I hope he gets better as a character writer. He, yeah. You know, the challenge <laughs> yeah. with... um what, what I found so interesting with the Martian is like astronauts asked him, how the hell did you get this so right? Yeah. Like he nailed that, the astronaut nature remarkably well in the yeah. Martian. But the Martian was also a crowdsourced book That's actually, right? right? Yeah. He published it like you did with the imposter syndrome. Yeah. He published it. He took a lot of feedback. Like it almost became a book by accident. It did. Now under the pressure of success, he has to do his second book. And kudos to him for getting it done. Yep. Because like lots of people wilt under this. Yes, right. But it has its issues. Yeah. Well, it's funny in that discussion, too. He said, uh, by no means is this literature. He was talking about The Martian. Sure. And mm-hmm. he said, "What? for instance, what do you know about Watney, other than he's a botanist? Right. Mm-hmm. Like, right. He's like, my character level goes about, you know, one foot deep. And yeah, that's that. Yeah, his parents. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. Where do you go to school? Yeah. Yeah. Other than he's yeah. a smart That's it. Yeah. Well, yeah. I'm so, with you. so are you going to continue this vector? I want to. I have a follow-up to this book. I could tell you. This is good. I, I like this idea. Uh, the follow-up to this book, which I've actually got written out in, uh, in, in, in um, outline form, is uh, the probe that they send up. Because the focus of the first book is that they're trying to send up a second probe. And the, the startup is trying to send it up. Anyway, well, And this is also real. Oh, just, yeah. There is a huge conversation about what mission comes next. They have the instrument. They need the rocket. <laughs> they need a vehicle. Yes. Right? I mean, the, the booster's not even a problem. Yeah. The real question is, and the compromise, I don't know how far you got into this, like the compromise of Cassini itself, mm-hmm. like it was originally supposed to be a three-axis stabilized light yep. Voyager, so, and it wasn't. Yep. They, yep. they pulled back the money, and it's a huge machine. Like, yep. it's the size of a bus. You know, like, I feel forget. like a popcorn eater right now. I'm <laughs> loving you guys just keeping <laughs> out. I'm yeah. seriously digging this. But I'm when sorry. you talk about the all the work that's being done around the Europa lander, yeah. like more proof that Arthur C. Clarke was actually a time traveler who yeah. came back yes, to teach us, right. right? Here's how geostationary satellites works. Oh, by the way, attempt no landings on Europa because it probably has yeah. life, yeah. right? For all the same reasons it yeah, yeah, does, yeah. ice-covered body and so forth. And so the Europeans have worked very hard on a mission to land on Europa, penetrate the ice, yes. send a probe below. And at most of the dimensions on that 
probe, yeah. I think would work wonderfully on Encetalus. Yeah, well, so the, that's what actually the next book I wanted it to be is this probe is on its way. Some year in the future, I was going to just leave it vague. And it wakes up and it got fried on the way by a solar flare. And You're so, going to give away your literary no, it's okay. secrets? It's okay. No, it's really? okay. Just, this is device set now. Yeah, okay. Okay. And then the story begins. And so, so the probe wakes up and it's like, what's going on? And it has to reboot these systems and, this, and it can't get the systems online. And so NASA is sending it things like, okay, now we've, we've got to send you the constructions on how to use the data that we sent up with you, which is data from the first Cassini mission. And so the only thing that is able to be sent, because there's all these wonderful programming languages, but the only thing that's light enough to be sent is Python. So they have, <laughs> so they have the, the machine it has to teach of itself course. Python. And so the book is going to be told from the machine's perspective as it inspects the data using Python. Learning its own program. Rob, Learning a program I language. love this. I Very love it. Yeah, it's love it. Love it. Yeah, so that's, that's oh, the next one. And an almost sentient and so it's going to also learn machine learning algorithms like, okay, how am I going to do this with Python? Now, nice. have you thought about um, crowdsourcing the sci-fi books, the fiction books, as much as... I could, but I, it's, I hold that stuff really dearly. Story okay. means a lot to me, as Richard will tell you when we get in our arguments oh, about no. how they, the characters and how they uh, end. I know you're delighted well, that I care. But story I is... really am. Story is one thing, but do you find that you are looking for input on other aspects of it? Oh, yeah. So, um, I had I had three or four people on a Slack channel. I, I, I didn't want to let it out too much. Oh, okay. And they definitely gave me feedback, especially my DBA friends. Like, Good. how would you solve this problem? And it turns my editor is also a DBA. She was amazing. Hmm. Diane Fay is her name. Uh, she's the one who took over Massive JS for me. And okay. she is one of the smartest people I have ever met. That's great. And literary beyond belief. Just wow. crazy. So, uh, how, well, how long before we can expect the next one? Oh, I'm going to give it six months to a year. Let it bake a little bit. So, I'm actually trying to write the volume two of Imposter's Handbook as well. Till the itch hits you hard enough, right? It'll, it'll come out. It's, uh, it's in my head every day. I literally wake uh, up and it's in my head. I'm like, feel I'll like get I'm you being, out of there soon enough. <laughs> being so slow about history of .NET, right? Well, well okay. So, the next ob- and last obvious question is, where can we get this? So, the, the book, the, all my books are available on my website, bigmachine.io. Uh, just head over there and you can buy it, download it, and off Links you go. in the show note to A Curious Moon. Yes, A Curious Moon. That's so great because I and, – and you can buy a hardcover or a paperback version of it, right? Not yet. And, and I'm waiting on that because I want to make sure all the edits are correct because okay. I'm getting feedback from a lot of readers and, and right. I'm finding some things. Well, I love it and I can't wait I to read it. I sent you notes. Not you just did. the attack on the ending, but other no, things. No, you did. No, you did. A lot of people are, and it's very yeah, helpful. No, it was, been, it was a real pleasure to read. By yeah, thank I you. really enjoyed well, it. Well, I'm, I'm, this was a mind-blowing interview for me because we've known each other for a long time, yeah. and we have this mutual admiration society going back years. Yes. And uh, this seems like the culmination of your desires and your talents. Thank you. I really can't wait to read it. Cool. Thank you yeah. very much. Thanks, Rob. Yep. And thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time on .NET Rocks. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net and produced by Pwop Studios, a full-service audio, video, and post-production facility located physically in New London, Connecticut, and, of course, in the cloud. Online at pwop.com. 
visit our website at dotnetrocks.com for RSS feeds, downloads, mobile apps, comments, and access to the full archives going back to show number one, recorded in September 2002. And make sure you check out our sponsors. They keep us in business. Now go write some code. See you next time. Got a transmitter band by the MCC.